All right, everybody, welcome aboard to episode 27, MS and Stem Cells. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannett, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. Yosef, my man, what's going on, brother? Is this is this our first MS episode? This is, You know, right? I, was, I was thinking about that. It really is, and it's such an important, um, not like other diseases aren't important, but I feel like MS is more water cooler, right? I feel like people... Uh, know a little bit more about multiple sclerosis, so we're gonna uh, we're gonna talk about it today in the show. I'm excited Excellent. about that. I've got a great oh. guest, Valentina Fasati from the New York Stem Cell Foundation. She's gonna tell us about her latest paper and uh, what what goes wrong in MS and how we can use stem cells to possibly uh, fix it. So um, I'm excited for that. We'll have that towards the end of the show. So we are the Stem Cell Podcast, the one and only Stem Cell Podcast. We are now also the official podcast of the International Society for Stem Cell Research, the ISSCR. Check them out, out ISSCR.org. And check us out, StemCellPodcast.com, at StemCellPodcast on Twitter, StemCellPodcast at gmail.com. You know where we at, right, okay, Yos? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm having like the uh, podcast version of Confetti coming down after that ISSCR uh, announcement. So Yeah, it's that's awesome. Good. I'm so excited. It's going to be great. I'm really, really pumped. We've got a lot of things in the, in the plans. In fact, we have a little Stem Cell Podcast business meeting coming up this uh, week at the uh, one and only Del Frisco Steakhouse. Mm. Uh, so, Yosef and I and uh, Anthony, the back at the back end, Anthony Fass over there, we're going <laughs> to... We're going to chat it up and see what we can do for the audience and see how we can kick this uh, yep. show to uh, yeah, kick looking, it up a notch, take it to the next level. I'm looking forward to my first Stem Cell Podcast t-shirt. I need some stem cells on my on my, uh, on my my clothing. Yeah, we so. got those. Everybody stay tuned. Everyone's going to see our new shirts that we're yeah. going to be able to put out there. And uh, it's, it's a, we got a lot of things coming. I'm really excited. But let's stick to the program here and yeah. uh, let's kick off the, uh, the straight roundup. science straight science roundup right here do the okay science roundup, but so um there was by the way we're still going to talk about science even though i mean like space and other things because this is sort of the broader aspects of uh, science not just stem cells so uh starting off real quick with a nice neurology study that uh showed that it appears that people with the ab blood type are 82% more likely to develop uh, problems with cognition and memory as they age. The authors studied over 30,000 people over the age of 45. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but about 4% of the U.S. population has type AB blood. And um, they also found that people with higher levels of factor eight which is this clotting factor, we're almost 25% more likely to have cognitive problems than those without, and that people that are AB blood type tend to have higher factor eight, so that may be the culprit. Um, do you know your blood type? You know what? I was just thinking about it. I think I'm, I don't even know. O? So I'm, I don't know what you the hell You type A, you B, you AB, or you O? I don't know, man. I I, I really don't know. I, I don't I, I really don't. I don't. I, we should figure that out before it's too late. <laughs> uh, moving on, there's a... <laughs> what's our favorite journal? PNAS. Yes, PNAS study showing that uh, the mantle plumes don't exist. So apparently since uh, it was first proposed in 1971 for volcanoes that this mantle plume theory started. And in 1990, it was adopted uh, that that's how volcanoes explode. Instead, uh, it appears that gigantic chunks of mantle appear to rise from the Earth's surface uh, they found direct evidence of this, and it's not in the form of a plume. So uh, this new evidence shows that um, 
I guess volcanoes result from normal broad scale convection and plate tectonics. So uh, you can find that over in PNAS. There was a Nature Genetics study showing that gene called KNSTRN, which is an oncogene, is activated by sunlight and drives the development of uh, certain uh, carcinomas, uh, cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas. And mm. uh, the particular region of the gene is mutated in about 20% uh, percent of these cancers and 5% of melanomas. Um, and this gene is uh, third place in their analysis after CDKN2A and TP53, but these genes were already known. But this KNSTRN gene is uh, known to help form the kinetochore which, as you know, you know, pulls away chromosomes mm -hmm. and is pretty important for uh, cell division. So uh, you can find that That's, in Nature Genetics. Just the word squamous weirds me out. Yeah. I don't know. Just, just say it. Just yeah, weird. No. no, it's a bad word. <laughs> um, cell reports study identifying AMP. K, I, I'm assuming that's AMP kinase, as a gene that can slow aging in, uh, throughout the entire body when activated remotely in key organ systems. So wow. AMP kinase is a key energy sensor that activate, gets activated when energy levels are low and also is involved in autophagy. Um, so increasing AMPK in intestines increased the lifespan by about 30% or two weeks. This was a fruit fly model. So wow. uh, humans also have this gene. So uh, cool. that's interesting. There was a molecular psychiatry pet study showing that obese people tend to have greater dopamine activity in the habit forming region of the brain. Uh, but the authors aren't sure if this is a cause or effect. Uh, so that's in molecular psychiatry. There was a neurology study showing that um, looking at 147 adults uh, with two MRI scans over the course of 3.5 years apart, and they found uh, that sleep difficulties were linked to more rapid decline in brain vol volume in several brain regions, including the frontal, temporal, and parietal regions. And this was especially pronounced in people over 60. So again, not knowing if it's cause or effect, but uh, sleep deficits, I guess, correlate with less brain volume um, mm. over time. And uh, let's see here. PNAS, again, uh, showing that they, uh, this is pretty cool. They found these, uh, they've been looking at a Neanderthal masterpiece uh, painting inside a cave in Gibraltar that's more than 39,000 years old. So we've been making art for about wow. that. Wow. And um, this was, uh, so it's found in a cave in Gorham's cave overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, basically, humans didn't get to. Uh, that cave until about 10,000 years ago. So this is most uh, definitely some Neanderthal artwork. And it's like this geometric uh, crisscross pattern shape. Uh, we'll post a link to it on the website. So that's pretty cool. There was a science article showing that ferromanganese... <laughs> ferromanganese? Yeah, ma manganesian silicate pearl... <laughs> perovskite yep. <laughs> in the Earth's mantle is breaking into two distinct phases around uh, 1,200 miles beneath the Earth's surface. Yeah, 
where I like to visit. Uh, one layer <laughs> is <laughs> devoid of iron, and the second, uh, what they call the H phase layer, is full of iron. So uh, they use powerful X-rays to show under extreme conditions that that um, I'm not going to say that name again. Ferromanganese can break up into that material. So you can find that in science. It's kind of a big deal cool. since in science. Um, Journal of Alzheimer's uh, study showing that the disease uh, that low doses of T- THC the active compound in marijuana can reduce production of amyloid beta and prevent abnormal accumulation of it, and that low doses also selectively enhanced mitochondrial function. So you can find that in the journal. Isn't that Alzheimer's. interesting? Yep. Pot might help you save your memory. Well, the active ingredient. In right, right. Yeah, that's, uh, what I mean. yeah, that's a good point. Funny. Usually, yeah, acutely, it definitely harms it, but hey, I guess in the long run, it may protect. Um, nature studies showing that uh, channel rhodopsin, they use channel rhodopsin to optogenetically erase mouse memories via the dorsolateral gen- dentate gyrus or basal lateral complex of the amygdala and uh, early CFOS expressing neurons were targeted and they used fear conditioning as the model in these, I believe it was rats, but it could have been mice. Cool. And they couldn't erase the amygdala form memories and emotions, but they could in the uh, dentate gyrus. So uh, that's... Cool. Yeah, so it's got PTSD, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder implications. So you can find that in nature. There was a biological psychiatry study showing that NF1 neurofibromatosis type 1 gene can cause excess drinking of alcohol due to its regulation of GABA and the release of it into the amygdala. So variants in the human gene are linked to alcohol dependence. So NF1, not good for alcohol. good, man. Uh, There was a JCI study, Journal of Clinical Investigation, showing that uh, estrogen can reduce binge eating in mice. Uh, they use GLP-1 estrogen. It's like a tag that they use, GLP-1 estrogen, uh, to deliver it systemically uh, where it made its way to the brain and also increased serotonin. Estrogen receptor A in the serotonin region of the brain is the ultimate target for this therapy. And um, uh, so the research was kind of driven by human data, which you n- never see. It's usually animal, you know, I guess a lot of the data pointed towards estrogen, uh, women undergoing like estrogen therapy um, were reporting this. So uh, binge eating, estrogen. Yeah, you can find that in JCI. Um, Frontiers in human molecular, uh, human neuroscience studies show that nine and 10 year olds who are more aerobically fit have more fibrous, compact white matter tracts in the brain and uh, then their less fit peers. So mm-hmm. exercise affecting... Get fit. Yeah, fiber, fibers in the brain. Exercise that brain. Yep. And then a couple more. Uh, another JCI study show, shedding light on why brain tumors, tumors occur more often in men. I didn't know this, but uh, men are more, twice as more likely to get glioblastomas. And uh, it could be down to this ret- retinoblastoma protein, RB, uh, which uh, reduces cancer risk and significantly less active in the male brain. So... Right. and dis- Disabling RB and female brain cells, they were actually equal, uh, equally as likely to become cancerous. So you can find that in JCI. And uh, finally, I'll end with a nature medicine study showing that uh, twice daily doses of ruxolitinib for five months uh, was used to successfully treat alopecia 
areata, this patchy autoimmune baldness, which I thankfully don't have. And um, yeah, real quick, actually, I'm just going to announce because I saw this today that the European Space Agency announced that they're going to be landing on on a comet, on the head of a comet in their Rosetta mission on November 11th. So look out for that. November 11th, it's going to be the first landing. landing. Yeah. That sounds so... I want to land on a comet. I know. This thing is pretty awesome. Can we do a stem cell podcast from a comet one day? Actually, actually, I'm going to end on this one last one. I can't help this, but I don't know if you saw this. There was a publication of a in brain of a Chinese girl who was missing. Oh she's 24. God, she was missing her this. cerebellum. I couldn't believe it. She was born it. without a cerebellum. How is that even possible? Yeah, her parents said she had troubles walking yeah, until I, I, I seven. And then, yeah, so. you're like, what? You need that to like, yeah. But, I mean, and geez. she had like, did she came in complaining of dizziness and they looked at her. She didn't have a cerebellum. Like, apparently, that. she had like speech problems early on and walking problems. But how Imagine do you, doing that like MRI. You know, you're just like, oh, well, well I would, yeah, I would whoa, fall out of my chair. Yeah. That's an easy diagnosis. <laughs> Apparently, the rest oh, of yeah, the family yeah. was fine. They have normal PET scan, and this, this poor girl is missing a full cerebellum. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's it for me. All right, man. Let's move to the stem cell world here. I'll start in cell. There was a gr- there was an obituary for Yoshiki Shisai uh, published in the latest issue. Um, and it was, it's really great. If anyone out there, um, you know, we talk about the staff controversy and the tragic death of Dr. Sasai did a great job of, of writing this. And um, the first sentence, Yoshisiki Sasai was one of the preeminent stem cell biologists known as the brain maker. Uh, I love that because he was, in fact, the brain maker. And, uh, he was called Sensei, uh, which, which means teacher. Go over there and check it out. It's in cell. I'll post the link. It's great. He definitely um, was the sensei. Okay, he was a sensei. This is uh, this came out in science, and I found this Yosef because Lorenz posted it on LinkedIn. I love that Lorenz is active on the on the LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, this was in science. It was, it was called an exclusive. I love that exclusive. We should have the music. Da, 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 da. Nature reviewers not persuaded by the initial stem cell papers. Did you see that they leaked out the review sheets? So basically, um, the, co- the the email correspondence between Nature and the first author, Doctor Obakata, or Haruko Obakata. I don't know if she's a doctor or not. Uh, I think everything's up for question nowadays. Um, came out, so you can actually read the review response to the paper. Which wow. is bizarre. How that? I love how it links. Like this is like like a like a like a you know like something in the NFL in the past couple of weeks. But um, but so when you read the reviews, the reviewers were actually very very cautious and very very skeptical. Mm. I mean, they would say things like, "I recommend the authors be extremely cautious in their claims." There are several issues I would consider to be clarified beyond well doubt because of the potential revolutionary nature of the observations. Um, they say a paramount, power, paramount, paramount importance for the legitimacy of this paper is that the authors provide a full step-by-step account of their methodology such that the community can rapidly validate these fi- the reproducibility of these findings. So they, the, all, the reviewers were very, very concerned. Uh, they called it highly provocative, truly remarkable, and potentially groundbreaking, but they had many, many issues. What, what we don't know, though, is if... Uh, on the revisions and such, they continue to express, because you remember, for everyone who doesn't understand, editors can accept the paper even if all the reviewers don't want it. Mm. Uh, so we don't know if that was the case here, but I never knew what the reviewers said, because you never know, but this came out, uh, and you can actually read all what the reviewers said about the initial stat findings that have been subsequently uh, retracted, so you can check that out. 
Um, this is cool and really great for the field. Japan <clears throat> Japan carried out the first IPS stem cell implant surgery. Yost, did you see this? They did the first. Uh, this is the first uh, IPS, basically cell replacement surgery, put into a human. Mm. Uh, this is in Japan. This was carried out by a um, um, ophthalmologist. Uh, Masayo Takahashi is uh, a female patient in her 70s with age-related MACD gen. They put a sheet of uh, retina cells that be created from IPS cells into the back of the eye, and they're going to take it out four years, and she's the first of six patients to do so. Kind of fitting that this was done in Japan where the IPS technology was uh, discovered by uh, uh, Dr. Yamanaka, so that's really awesome to see that's moving forward. That's in Japan. Uh, let's see here. These... Uh, Scientists reset human stem cells to a blank state. We just had Dr. Dr. Austin Smith on the show, and he held out on us because <laughs> about a few weeks after that, he published now a paper in Cell um, reporting the generation of a truly, uh, you, uh, basically, the blank, naive, primitive state. We have uh, found is, the ground state. You know, I, I breezed over that paper, but I, I'm still wondering, do they run off lift? They, do you know those? Yeah, they run off lift. So they basically were able to do this by introducing Nanog and KLF2, yeah. and then they rendered them FGF2 non-dependent or independent and uh, lift dependent. So they have a blank state cell, which I still am unsure of what that means in terms of the technology. I still don't really know if it matters. But in terms of the biology and, and developmental biology, it's a, it's a really cool feat. They can now study the very early, early first step in embryogenesis and embryology. So that's very cool. Mm -hmm. Congrats to Austin's lab. Let's see. Uh, diabetes, uh, diabetes researchers, diabetes researchers find a faster way to create insulin producing cells. So diabetes, uh, insulin is what's needed. And stem cells have been looked at as cell to create the islets to produce uh, the the insulin. Uh, this is a paper that was published in Nature Biotechnology out of Timothy uh, Kiefer's lab. Professor in UBC Department of Cellular Physiological Sciences Department of Surgery he has a new protocol that transforms stem cells into these insulin-secreted pancreatic cells uh, a little bit quicker and a little bit better. Um, so that's in Nature Biotech. You can check that out. Uh, let's see here. There's a cool paper, Yosef, in... Uh, um, stem cell reports about schizophrenia by out of Rusty Gage's lab, uh, Vivian Hook, Kristen Brennan on the author line. Human iPSC neurons display active activity-dependent neurotransmitter secretion and aberrant catecholamine levels in schizophrenic neurons. So basically they created iPS cells and then subsequent neurons from schizophrenia patients and they found that um, the brain cells taken from people with schizophrenia gave off higher amounts of neurotransmitters like dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine. There was a lot higher expression of tyrosine hydroxylase, the rate-limiting enzyme and catech mm. catecholamine synthesis. So this is a really this is really one of the first, to my knowledge, reports yeah. showing from a disease, especially a psycho uh, mental disease. Sorry, from a, one of these uh, disorders, psychiatric disorders, that they show aberrant neurotransmitter release, which I thought was really cool because mm. uh, that's a sh that's a hallmark of you know maturation and maturity and that's always a question in the dish whether we can make neurons that are mature and this uh, shows that you can and you can actually use it to infer some stuff from psychiatric disease so that's very cool out of good old rusty's lab mm -hmm. uh let's see here 
This was out of uh, Rudy Yanoff. Ru- Rudy Yanoff. Yanoff. Ru- Rudolph. You know why I did that? Because I, I I shortened Rudolph to Rudy, and I went Rudolph. Rudy Yanoff. <laughs> I love that. I love when those things happen. This is uh, cell stem cell. The developmental potential of iPSCs is greatly influenced by reprogramming factor selection. So here they they talk about how the quality of iPS cells generated from uh, um, OSKM, OK4, SOX2, KLF4, and MIC is what the is what the cocktail is to make IPS. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, you can get a lot of bad quality IPS cells, which leads to very high variability. So what they found is that they have found a new four uh, um, uh, cocktail, if you will, Sal4, Nanog, ESRB, and Lin28, mm-hmm. Snell, in MFs, and they generate high quality IPS. Uh, C's they're they're the less efficient, but the quality is much better, and so they suggest this might be a better way to uh, produce high quality lines. Cool. Uh, let's see the conversion of human fibroblasts into monocyte-like progenitor cells. So monocytes are important in the immune system. They I think they replenish the macrophage lineage. I think I think, and in here um, uh, they. This is bizarre, Yost. They just used SOX2 overexpression in human fibroblast, and they found this was able to kick in a program that generates monocytes. Hmm. Now, the interesting thing there is SOX2 is involved in a lot of things. So it's, it's, it's very interesting to me that it was able to do that, but it did. You can find that in the Journal of Stem Cells. Uh, it's out of the lab of Juan Carlos Belmonte. Um, and let's see. I will... End with this one before I move to the the last paper we're going to discuss with Valentina. This is in Stem Cell Reports. Chemical conversion of human fibroblasts into functional Schwann cells. Um, so they took fibroblast and using a novel compound, they don't give the name, they call it compound B. They're able to then uh, convert this human fibroblast, 60% efficiency to Schwann cells. Uh, Schwann cells are the major glial cell type of the peripheral nervous system. Um, and so this is a very rapid, easy way to create Schwann cells at uh, pretty good efficiency. And I will end there, and let's move to the last paper. Yeah, I'm at compound B. <laughs> so why don't you bring on our guest? All right, so the last paper, Yosef, we'll discuss, uh, comes out of the lab of our guest. So I'm really, I won't really discuss it. We'll all discuss it together. Let me just give you the title. The title is The Efficient Generation of Myelinating oligodendrocytes, one of my favorite cells in the nervous system, from primary progressive multiple sclerosis patients by induced pluripotent stem cells. This is out of the lab of Dr. Valentin Fassati. So before I bring her on, let me just give her a quick introduction. Dr. Fassati is the um, 2010 NICEF Helmsley, I always say that wrong, Helmsley Stem Cell Investigator from the New York Stem Cell Foundation in her lab. She's using... um, you know, skim samples and IPS technology, and these samples are coming from patients with MS, multiple sclerosis, trying to create the uh, oligodendrocytes affected by the disease. She'll tell us a little bit more about what an oligo is and what she does. Um, I met Dr. Fasadi or uh, Valentina back in, I think it was like 2009, when she was the recipient of a Druckenmiller NICEF Fellowship. That's where we cross paths, and I'm happy uh, for the Stem Cell Podcast. If you also have an idea, welcome to the show. Welcome, Valentina. How are you doing? Thank you very well. All right. So we typically start, um, you know, just the interview portion. Why don't, since you are in the world of stem cells and stem cell research, why don't you just uh, tell tell everybody how you got into stem cell research? I know your previous work was um, looking on lymphocytes and such as a postdoc. So tell everybody how, um, you know, you got into stem cells, why, why they fascinated you, and then we can talk a little bit about what your lab is doing. 
Okay. Well, go into the memories. Uh, actually, it's been a long time ago, and I've been always fascinated by stem cells because um, I guess it was the right timing for me when I started uh, my university. It was 1997, so the first year we did the biology course, and, you know, the human embryonic stem cells uh, came out, and um, there was a lot of excitement about the field, what was going to happen, and, um, and yeah, I just uh, started following that uh, through the different years, and then uh, um, I really like it so i decided to to do my thesis uh, at the end of the five years uh, in a lab that was doing hematopoietic stem cells and then at that time actually my professor there dr Bagna, professor bagnara uh, decided to uh, explore a new field the mesenchymal stem cells and so again it was at the very beginning uh, of uh, that field there are a lot of things uh, that still needed to be identified that uh, really got more and more into it so i decided to come to a stem cell course as a summer it was 2004 in cold spring harbor and i guess that i fell in love uh, i met uh, uh, dr hans snoke uh, and we kept in touch and then a couple of years later i moved into his lab and again it was hematopoietic stem cells and b-cell development more lymphocytes but then um, at the end, the lab, uh, the lab also decided to move on embryonic stem cells, and that's where I started working on uh, IPS. Uh, and uh, we, we got the fellowship where, uh, you know, we also met with you, uh, Chris. Uh, and then uh, in the uh, beginning of 2011, January, I moved to NYSEF, where now I'm working on uh, IPS. And uh, um, I decided to shift my path of, on uh, really working on MS for a personal interest. Uh, this disease is very um, important for me to understand. And so that's where I ended up. Nice. Uh, you know, I have to admit, the first time I saw your name was uh, associated with a cluster of cells in the shape of a heart during Valentine's Day. Was that you? Oh yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's, it, that, that was on like a. I saw that on Somebody? some like NICEF, uh Twitter post or something like Happy Valentine's Day, and I I saw yeah. your, I saw your name, and I was like, look at those red cluster cells looking like a heart, and uh, I, it, it was yeah. a nice little uh, little post there. So um, because the, the, what was funny that was like February thirteen, and I was I spent like the whole day at the microscope taking pictures, and at one point there is this color. That really looks like a heart and so i took this picture and it was so beautiful and i sent it to the office and i said everybody happy valentine's day and they like it so, so much that they sent it to everyone and i said yeah, yeah maybe maybe, maybe we could post that on the website yeah uh, when that's this really is, fun so. um so can you valentina for everybody the word oligodendrocyte to people sounds very foreign sometimes our audience is broad so not just neural so um can you explain, um, maybe you can explain a little bit, talk about multiple sclerosis as the disease, um, what goes wrong in a sense, and then tell, tell us a little bit about the oligodendrocyte cell and, and how that fits with the disease before we go into how you're uh, trying to approach studying it. Okay, sure. Uh, let's try to be clear because it's, it's a very complex disease, so it's very difficult to explain in a, in a few words. Uh, basically, multiple sclerosis uh, means, uh, as the word says, that there are those sclerosis of li or brain or the spinal cord of the patients. And those lesions are caused by infiltration of immune cells uh, that uh, attack 
the myelin. So as you know, the you know we all know the the brain as a neurons, but actually the neurons are not the only cells that are in the brain. And the axon of the neurons, those fibers where the electrical signal uh, goes, are insulated by um, my, this this thing called myelin, which is a really an insulation similar to the plastic that we have insulating our electrical cables. And this is a very, very important thing for the cells, not just because it's protecting uh, the axons mechanically and, uh, you know, from any injury, but he's also allowing the electrical signal to move much faster. Now, it's it's hard to explain in a few words, but really, um, if we evolved, you know, by from smaller uh, animals to really large animals, and we can now think and move our toes, this, like two meters distance, is because there is this myelin sheath. So if the axon is not covered by the myelin, um, it will get damaged first, and you know, the, the electrical signal will uh, slow down, and then if the axon gets damaged, then that signal will be interrupted, and this is irreversible. So whenever a brain and something, you know, can connect the brain to the other organs is broken, it cannot be fixed again. So um, the oligodendrocytes is these cells that are making the myelin. Uh, they are basically a very funny body, but a very beautiful cells. So, so they have all this... Uh, fingers uh, and uh, through those fingers they really touch the axons and they wrap the axon with their with their myelin so of course uh, you know if the immune cells are starting attacking this uh, um then uh, uh there is a uh, then the cells uh, um as i said they 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 will create some uh, um some uh, symptoms that are depending on the area that is affected NMS is a very, very complex disease where people, patients can be more or less severely affecting, depending really on how many lesions they have in the brain, on where the lesion occurs. So very often it's close to the optic nerve and there's a visual loss, but most of the time it's in the spinal cord and there are problems with the balance. And eventually this can build up and people can end up in a wheelchair. So it's even more complex than that because um, as for now, we do have a lot of drugs that are able to uh, attack the immune system and keep the immune system uh, calm so that, you know, it doesn't really enter more in the brain. Um, but th- so these drugs are now basically stopping what is called relapsing remitting MS. Uh, but there is a, uh, a second phase that is called progressive phase where uh, those drugs don't work anymore. And basically the patients, instead of having this inflammation that is periodic, they just starting uh, deteriorating more and more and they just, uh, you know, their uh, disabilities start to accumulate. And there is no cure for that. And this so is an autoimmune disease, correct? Well, it is believed to be an autoimmune disease, although it has not really been proven uh, completely that is an autoimmune disease. We don't know, like, uh, for, like for, for other diseases, you know, you know exactly that there is one autoantibody directly against one specific target. For MS, it's more complicated. And, and uh, as I was telling you, there is this progressive phase that is really not well understood. And in the recent, uh, like, decade, uh, there is a lot uh, going on and uh, our understanding is improving about also the neurodegeneration. So it seems like there is not just those lesions, lesion caused by the inflammation, but there is also a brain atrophy and there is a neurodegeneration that is involved in the gray matter. 
and that is um, they may be independent from the autoimmune attack. So it's a very very complicated disease, and um, and now the the field the, the challenge now uh, is really to try to understand this progressive phase with this neurodegeneration because we now have some some of very good drugs that can help uh, in the autoimmunity part. Now you you have an immuno background, I assume. Where did this idea that the immune system was attacking its own myelin-producing cells come from? If it, you know, I always was taught that it was an autoimmune disease. Um, where where did that even come from? If if it's not so clear that it is, uh, well, it came from uh, from mostly from uh, animal studies actually um from the idea that once you know it it was the the, you know the animal model that he used for ms it's called the eae model but at the beginning he wasn't even uh, done for uh, as a any as as a way to model ms uh, there were studies where they were uh, trying to understand uh, uh, what happened when you have uh, you know, vaccination with, uh, uh, for some viruses. And so what they noticed is that when, when, if they were injecting a brain uh, from another animal into the animal, uh, this would cause uh, some symptoms that were very similar to MS. Mm. So then they looked more deeply into that and they figured out that you know, if you inject components of the myelin, some components, some protein of the myelin into a mouse, this uh, will uh, trigger an immune reaction. And the cells of the immune system, uh, they are able, you know, to penetrate, to infiltrate the CNS, and then uh, they, they really create something that resembles to MS. So from there, all the studies went on um, to to understand if something like that was possible in the, even in the humans. Although, again, the major problem is that when we have human, uh, nobody's injecting really in the patient uh, the mm. myelin, right? So the, the really original trigger of, the, of, the, of this autoimmunity has never been understood in the humans. And then, uh, you know, the, the bloods and blood and CSF are very um, easy um, uh, parts of the... Uh, of the body to, to investigate. So over the last uh, century, when MS was deeply studied, everything really focused on blood and uh, on CSF. And so uh, we we really increased our understanding of, of the immune system and all the cells uh, that are recruited in the lesion and uh, how the lesion occurs and how the inflammation phase occurs. Uh, but now that we have more tools to better understand the brain, we are discovering something new. So for example, the MRI imaging came up in the 90s, and um, these MRI images you know, allow us to really understand the lesions, but lately uh, there's been really good progresses, so we can also look at the gray matter, and that is where uh, we started seeing uh, that there is much more than just uh, those uh, you know, sclerosis, those uh, demyelinating area. There is also a, a general involvement of the gray matter of the thalamus and of uh, you know, parts of the brain that we would never uh, guess before. Mm. Um, so uh, there is a huge attention now on understanding this neurodegeneration that is going on in the brain. Some groups are even thinking that, again, what I said before, that is actually an inside-out hypothesis, so that is possible that uh, there is a originally a neurodegeneration in the brain, Mm. And that would trigger the immune system. Uh-huh. Uh, but the majority of groups are still, you know, believing more in the autoimmune hypothesis. But certainly the two components are there. And we need to approach both to be able to cure MS. Mm. Only one is not enough. 
Uh, I just have a, qu- a quick question before we move into the the paper and the approach using IPS technology. You know, when we Yosef uh, and I um, are in neural the neuron element of the CNS, and when we do uh, we we talk about this, we derive these cells from uh, a younger cell. We go through a progenitor phase and then a terminal differentiation step, which is, I'm sure, the approach uh, for that that you take as well. But the neuron is the in, in the cell in the you know in the lineage is the busy end, so it does the work. It, it it'll you know the neurons mature, then they release neurotransmitter. Is I, I'm, this is the part I think I was always confused on in the oligodendrocyte lineage. Is the precursor cell the one that myelinates, or is it the mature oligodendrocyte that's doing the myelination? Yeah, you need to have the, the, the functional cells are the precursors. They're called OPCs, oligodendrocyte precursor cells. So those are the cells that are able to migrate, to reach the lesion, and then they start, uh, you know, the, they, they start differentiating. And, uh, but once they turn, they, they become oligodendrocytes, uh, then the oligodendrocytes are not able anymore to uh, proliferate. And so then, uh, you know, that's, uh, the game is over. I mean, they, they will, they will, what you want in uh, in terms of remyelination is really to recruit the OPCs and so have them proliferating, going to the neurons, and then differentiate to the last stage where you have the oligodendrocyte, where you will see the oligodendrocyte with the myelin. I have to admit, during my closed door session of my uh, defense of my thesis, um, one of my you know people on the panel had asked where where oligos came from in normal brain development, and I been familiar with radial glia and you know the neurogenesis and gliogenesis but it wasn't clear to me if opcs come from radial glia or some sort of germinal zone that creates say the white matter or regions in the cerebellum like is that precursor that ng2 precursor pdgfr what is that derived from radial glia as well or are these their own distinct population of precursors in the brain in development yeah you know i don't think it's it's not very clear uh yet okay. uh, especially for the human uh, we we still don't know really pretty much mm. um a lot about uh oligodendrogenesis and where exactly they arise uh, they, they there's been a big debate. This is not very clear if this ng2 cells uh, are derived from the radioglia or um and again, uh, yeah, it's. I mean, we know a little more in rodents, but in human, uh, the there may be both possibilities. Maybe actually. CEOs, I hope you use that answer during your thesis defense. You would have got away with <laughs> Just say that, you know what, really, you still don't know. I remember that from back in the day learning. It was always a, a subject of debate where the true uh, precursor arose. But um, let's now, let's just, let's move into the technology. So your approach, we talk about it all the time, uh, is uh, using pluripotent stem cells to derive your derivative, your oligodendrocyte. And in this paper, you, in particular, looking at uh, iPS cells, which... Um, you know, we, we, we surely talk about a lot and a lot of people are using to model disease. So, um, tell us a little bit about the approach, the, the kind of patient samples or the kind of patients you're getting these cells from. And then, uh, you know, how you differentiated the cells in, in very, you know, late, you don't have to go into the, you know, the whole dual SMAD and, and such, mm-hmm. but just, just give us an approach, your experimental approaches to how you were attempting to do this and, and where, where you hope to take the results you found. 
so we we decided to focus on the primary progressive patients, uh, which is something that I didn't talk before because uh, again, you know, in a, in a short time, it's difficult to summarize all MS. But um, to make the story more complicated, there is a small percentage of patients that's around ten percent that are defined as primary progressive. So those patients are quite different from the other in the sense that from the onset, they have this gradual degeneration. So they don't have relapses. They don't have those uh, fear of, you know, inflammation uh, periodically, but they simply uh, start going uh, worse and worse. And usually, um, you know, the, in 10, 15 years, uh, the patients uh, are, uh, they are, you know, they need to use a cane or a wheelchair. So it's a very debilitating disease. And there is really almost nothing known just because this such a few small population that is very hard to obtain samples and is very hard to study. So we decided to to focus on them. Um, and we're doing also other different studies, but, you know, one, one of these was the, the general for the seeing whether uh, we are able to make oligodendrocytes from, uh, from those patients. So... Um, the protocol started uh, at the beginning when we started. I actually hoped that uh, we could use the, the protocols that were already available. Uh, but unfortunately, it's a very challenging cell to make and it takes a really long time. So usually we were talking about 120 and 150 days uh, with a very, very low efficiency. Uh, usually, you know, you start from stem cells, you get neural cells neural stem cells, you get a lot of astrocytes and neurons, but only a few cells, you know, in one uh, uh, dish, you know, you could, you know, if you look under the microscope, you could really count like one, two, three cells, that's it. So that's really something that doesn't allow you to, to do any other experiment. And so basically, we, we sat down and we really try to um, brainstorm of anything that we could do to take the best from the previous available protocols and uh, just uh, speed it up and uh, make it more efficient and also make it, you know, reproducible with different lines because that's another problem that sometimes is not that the protocol doesn't work, is that uh, it works with the line where the, it has been optimized, but it may be, you know, is a one embryonic stem cell line, uh, but then you try with the, some other IPS cells uh, and, uh, you know, the efficiency really drop, drop dramatically. So we, we didn't really invent anything uh, special. We really used a combination of uh, what was known, uh, as you said, Chris, the, the Duasmad inhibition that you, you are very familiar with and works so beautifully and helps so many groups. So we used that and, in, in, uh, we, we really, um, try to optimize the the timing and the concentration of the critical factor, especially from the first part. So for making the progenitors, progenitors of the OPCs or progenitors of those OLIC2 positive cells, which are basically progenitors that can make uh, either motor neurons or uh, um, oligodendrocytes. And uh, we we really we were lucky to to really found the the right combinations uh, so that in twelve days we can really have a high efficiency on only two positive past uh, growth factors and cytokines and you know culture conditions that could allow us to to have uh, a lot of OPCs. Uh, then um, another important point is you know compared to what was 
uh, previously done in our uh, groups is that I want, once you have those OPCs, um, because this, of course, the culture, you know, is contaminated with neurons or astrocytes, uh, you, you need to purify them. Otherwise, you, you cannot really use them for the application when you, you just want to test the, the OPCs. Uh, so we um, worked out a, a method for sorting them and so purify them so uh, we could really have them in efficient numbers. Um, and um, so now we are using the sorting technique either by fax or but you can also do it by bits. And we decided to use um, a marker that is called O4. So it's a, um, it's a, a molecule that is expressed an antigen on the surface, uh, which is a little later than what other people used. Uh, maybe that's that's also quite different from the past. So people thought usually the O4 cells are defined like immature oligodendrocytes. It's not very clear um, exactly what they are, but what we found out is actually those cells are you know way more plastic. Maybe is a condition of uh, the in vitro instead of in vivo, but in vitro, those O4 cells are really still uh, completely OPC cells uh, or progenitors able to proliferate, uh, although they already start having the ramified you know, morphology. Actually, I have uh, a but, question for yeah. you, considering um, the O4 cells in your... What what are the ones that are also du- double positive with PDGFR alpha? That was a subset that were double positive. What makes... Uh, the double positive different from, I guess, regular O4, the single positive cells? Yeah, so the PDGFR alpha is the marker that was uh, mostly used in the past and is supposed to come earlier. Uh, so people usually sorted, no, they, they didn't sort actually, but people use it uh, PDGFR and CD9 um, or, uh, you know, NG2, like all previous markers. So First come PDGFR alpha and then PDGFR alpha start going down and you start having O4. But you have this time where you have, you know, both populations. Uh, so b- b- both markers are expressed. Mm. Uh, so we we didn't really look at. So we, we because, you know, to to try to repeat what was done previously, we were looking at PDGFR alpha. Uh, but then we we found that O4 was a much easier marker, even just technically, because the PDGFR staining is quite tricky because we do add in the medium PDGF. And mm. when you have PDGF in the medium, uh, the detection of the receptor is um, is trickier. So you need to wash it out. So it was more problematic for us. Sometimes it worked very well. Sometimes it didn't work. It was very, um, very funny. Uh, while the off 4 was always a beautiful staining, very clear facts. Um, and so we said, okay, why don't we try to sort for the all 4 We know that inside there is PDGF, so we know that they must be still progenitors and not really, you know, more uh, late terminal cells. Mm. Uh, but let's see, let's see what we get. And actually, we, I mean, we, we did obtain uh, the right population because then when we purified the all of four, including us, then we injected them in the mouse. We saw that they were behaving like uh, traditional OPCs meaning that they were able to, you know, engraft, migrate, and uh, and then uh, yes. differentiate so, and make myelin. So, so you injected these, uh, like, my impression of the field is it's a hard cell to make, but you guys have great surface markers to purify them. And now it seems like you have an even better protocol to make them. So uh, with this robust protocol, you were able to, as opposed to other labs like Steve Goldman's lab, I guess maybe he has done adult injections, but in this 
case, you had some really beautiful images of adult injected mice where the cells went to the white matter regions, the corpus callosum, correct? And were able to myelinate in that, in this mouse model, the shiverer mouse, which I guess is an autoimmune mouse or just has the gene knocked out for what MBP or I don't know. Yeah. The the shiverer mouse is just a genetic mutation. So the mouse is uh, highly hypomyelinated. So there is not autoimmunity involved, Mm. but it's a, um, yeah, it's a mouse basically that survives only a few months. uh, If, you know, if left by himself, because the brain is uh, completely hypomyelinated. Um, And then, well, our mice were also crossed with a rug, one deficient mm. mice, so we could inject the human cells, and uh, the injection was done in uh, neonatal mice. Okay. Uh, the difference, you know, a lot of, of course, the reviewers ask us a lot of questions in the comparison with the Steve Goldman paper that you cited, that was mm. a very seminal uh, work. So he also did um, IPS cells, but it was, you know, one, uh, two generic uh, IPS lines commer- avail- commercially available, not from the patient. Mm. And um, they didn't purify in their protocol. So what they did was they, they did this long differentiation for 120 plus days, and then they injected everything that was uh, mm. um, inside. But we thought, you know, especially, you know, in, a, in terms of moving uh, to a potential cell therapy, uh, it could it would be very important to have a purified population so that you uh, try to decrease minimally the risk of uh, contamination with the pluripotents themselves. So, Although there is none left in our cells at day 75, but still, you know, you don't really want to take the risk. Yeah. So just the, the, the I think the last thing I want to ask, and you can help me understand. So these these uh, pluripotent cells are derived from a patient that, that has the disease. The disease affects the cell that you created, and the cell you create is functional. So in other words, uh, just because it came from the patient, it didn't show a deficit in myelination. Is that correct? You were you saw it able to my the uh, you know uh, myelinate in your in your assay. So, did you see anything wrong with these cells from the patient? Did they, did they look different? Did they? Did, it, I mean, I don't know how long term you you saw. Is there eventual deficit? In other words, um, if if these cells from the patient are still functional. Is it that they're now they're not in the body and or brain of the patient that's causing them to get sick, or what's the hypothesis there that if you if you can create the myelinating cells from a patient that has MS, they won't exhibit the demy- the, the, the loss of myelination? Yeah, no. So the the general idea is that, of course, if MS is an autoimmune disease, uh, there is nothing wrong with the oligodendrocyte per se. Uh, but because the the immune cells are basically eating the myelin, um, at one point you need to to replace. Then there is there are a few people that believe that everything, what I told you before, starts either with the axonal degeneration or uh, oligodendriopathy, so there may be something wrong in the oligodendrocytes. And uh, we thought that, you know, the, the IPS really gave us the opportunity to look into this in a cleaner way than, you know, what has been done so far, which is basically just uh, histology of uh, brain autopsies when, you know, it's basically a real mess at that point, the brain. So it's not really easy to understand how was the beginning. So our preliminary study, so what we, you know, we published there is, yeah, um, looking at the just, uh, you know, differentiation potential, we didn't see anything different. And uh, also the engraftment, uh, we didn't see anything different. But 
um, the, the studies published uh, are, uh, you know, just uh, the beginning. So we didn't really uh, compare with the sure. number of controls. So we didn't go sure. deep into that. We are now uh, looking you know, on this second phase sure. and try to do go with um, RNA-seq and try to see whether we can find something different. Yeah, uh, I'd love but, to see uh, some behavior. Because we, we had the feeling that, you know, the, the community was really waiting for a protocol we wanted to publish the protocol mm-hmm. and uh, and because the protocol did work uh, with uh, patients as we thought it was also good to uh, to tell the other community look you know and uh, you know move basically forward from uh, where Steve uh, Steve Goldman left uh, that it was possible to you know rescue the chiver and mouse and now we also said well you know we um, technically it's possible to get fibro- skin fibroblasts from a patient and uh, even when they are uh, in the 60s, which is usually where those patients uh, would require, you know, a intervention for because that's when they they start really to accumulate the disabilities, and um, and so we we can technically take the cells of the patient and uh, re-inject them. So basically, our study is really following the study of Steve Goldman that is uh, considering this stem cell therapy. He, he uh, tried with, uh, you know, he published the, the system cell paper using uh, IPS lines and is also considering human fetal cells. Uh, but of course, if we want to go to that direction uh, um, using uh, potentially autologous cells, uh, you know, derived from your skin, uh, may also be um, a, a much uh, better option you, than uh, having to use you, human fetal cells. I have two questions of, about the study, and I encourage our listeners to go check out some of the images um the did you do any behavior is there a rescue of the behavioral no because we only looked for 16 weeks maximum so uh we didn't do like uh, steve goldman uh, you know a long-term rescue to see but but we we just really looked at engraftment and uh, okay um and yeah, yeah, those things are all ongoing. So it, now, you know, we, we are starting my, doing much deeper studies. Uh, but, but the first one was just a proof of principle that the cells are functional, basically. And, and there were some cells that had uh, human nuclear antigen that were underneath the corpus callosum in like the septal regions. Is there any idea what those cells were? They didn't seem to have MBP. Do you have any idea what they could be or what they're doing there? Yeah, we think that they stay as progenitors. So we never saw any any neuron formation. We did see some astrocytes, mm. um, although you know slightly less than what was uh, previously published. So we think that either they they are, they, they stay as uh, as progenitor, which could be actually good in the sense that you maybe you know don't want to exhaust completely your pool, but you you may want to have some cells that just stay there uh, even for a while and then at the time that there is a need they get recruited uh but yeah that's something also that we are uh, needs more uh, more investigation well i will say this i know this from firsthand experience um it's all about the protocol and the recipe just like just like cooking it's directly proportional to the you know you have to you have to get the pro- the, the the appropriate recipe to get the correct derivative um, and it seems that you've done this and you have a nice robust system. And now that you have a system and it's reproducible and reliable and robust, 
three R's, you can mm-hmm. now really a- ask lots of questions. And I think that's really where, you know, you spend a lot of time on the technology trying to create the cell type, right? Trying to, you know, you know this, trying to optimize yeah. and, and, and find a way to get the cell in the right combination and the right step. But once you have that, uh, now you open up a whole world of possibilities and we can really start to answer key hypotheses that, that just are outstanding because We've never really been able to access this kind of cell this early in development, and so you've done that. Congratulations. And I, 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 I know that feat. I know what it's like. And by the end, the technology is the least important part. You know, you, you know you're trying to make a cell, and you're just like, oh, come on. Let's just make Because you really just want to get to the point where you can ask questions, and I'm, sh- I'm sure that's where you are right now. So um, I'm sure we'll start to see a lot more stuff coming out. So uh congrats on that and i think we should probably move on to the to the next part so we can uh uh not talk about this forever because yosef and i can definitely talk about this kind of stuff forever <laughs> so yos you want to take it to the next uh well part of the, uh, uh, we typically ask uh where's the beef question before we ask a funny story and um i am assuming you would uh, you would say that maybe in the future that this is one of the more promising areas of stem cell therapy but um, just then, it's a general, you don't have to say your field, but just sort of a general question as where do you think the public will see the most likely cures or therapies from stem cell research? Yeah, well, maybe you're surp- you would be surprised that I don't think that the mass would be uh, like this. I mean, we did this tremendous effort because I, I think we need the, what Chris has said, I completely uh, agree with him. We need those cells. We need to better understand those cells and we need to understand myelination. So I'm really into it now developing a, a system for looking at myelination in vitro and from looking at drug screening for uh, remyelinating compounds. But in a mass, there, there will be a lot of uh, problems uh, bef- that we need to solve before going into into a therapy uh, because, as I said, you know, there is also the problem of this inflammation. So it's not very clear if you put the cells, uh, what the cell, what the inflammation is going to do. It's not clear why the uh, endogenous OPCs stop working. Is because they are exhausted or because you know they are inhibited by the inflammation? And the second seems to be. The the right chance, maybe for some patients. So it's, it's something that still we need to uh, to work out. It will probably will be for some you know specific type of patients that this may may work. Uh, but mm, there are also other you know genetic diseases that involve uh, uh, myelination, and um, I see. Uh, you know, when we talk about uh, again stem cell therapies, the 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 steps that we need to overcome are also a lot about safety and uh, you know approval uh, for those cells. So uh, it is possible that diseases that are really you know life threatening, where there is really nothing else to do, they will be pushed more. Um, instead of a disease like MS, where in the end, you know, the patient can still live for many years. And so before injecting something in his brain, uh, the FDA will re- or the other regulation uh, agencies will require really a lot of more data. And then well, we all know, you know, the, the eyes, uh, the macro degeneration has been now taken in consideration. I, I think that's uh, obviously a uh, a great uh, start just because it's a well-defined place. Uh, um, it's much more easy to check and to study, to investigate everything that will be a consequence of the injection than, you know, going to the brain. 
So well, something we, that is more compartmentalized. Uh, we appreciate your honesty and not going with MS. <laughs> and uh, so uh, finally, just to wrap it up, uh, we sort of like to end with a comic relief. Uh, if you have any funny stories you'd like to share from either grad school or postdoc or being a PI that uh, you could share with the audience. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I, this is my favorite I, part because some <laughs> people have some great stuff. We were we, Joseph and I are always surprised at some funny stories that people say. So we, 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 whatever, whatever you find to be funny, please let it. Please tell your story because it's 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 often time or not very very funny for us. Okay. Well, you know now now like this, I I, I really cannot think of any memory, but my my brain is like. Is in the still in the foggy brain uh, post uh, pregnancy and maternity. So mm-hmm. I really, it's a uh, and uh, maybe I can tell you something about this crazy here when I got to deliver a baby and a paper and was really it was really ridiculous. Uh, so yeah, that everything you know comes together and so really like in um, April my due date was April 16 and the revisions comes of course you know March April May so <laughs> I worked uh, like April 15 I wake up and I do still have a lot of energy I'm like okay nothing happened I really didn't feel you no know, I was totally fine so I start working working very hard all day I wrote all the um, comments to the reviewers I prepared you know all the draft and then at 6 p.m. I sent uh, an email to my postdoc and I said, and, you know, I, I should, maybe should go back to the email. Basically, the email says, um, you know, I, I feel a little tired. I'm not sure I will be able to work in the next days. So go on with this and, you know, wrap it up uh, in the final. And that was 6 p.m., maybe 6.01. And at midnight 39, my daughter was born. So wow. it was a... Uh, Wow. was really intense yeah it was extremely intense i had a feeling so yeah and then uh, you know everything came uh, but so that yeah, you had it you had a tremendous uh, spring and summer then you had you know you had uh, the birth of your child and the uh, paper come out so you had a, a pretty pretty awesome stretch of uh, months there that's great yeah your child must have been following your email uh, once you sent that email yeah. it was time <laughs> exactly that's what my mom said you know like she she knew that you were right that you were uh, ready to go but um, yeah my brain has been uh, really that's apparently a thing uh really deeply affected and uh, now it's incredible. Uh, yeah. It, yeah, really, you're both male. You you cannot uh, experience it, but really, like especially memory. You know, your brain is in constant sleep yeah. deprivation, and uh, and it's so hard to to think back. And it's really, you really have to you know well, make uh, write everything you need to remember. Yet another challenge for women in science. But congratulations on the baby and the paper, and uh, thank you very much for coming on and sharing all the stories and uh, details of your research. Yeah, thanks so Thank much. You. Thanks so much, Valentino. I'll be down uh, for the NICEF conference in October. So if I don't see you before then, I will, I'm sure I'll see you then. I'm sure you'll be over there. I'll see you then. Yes, this is a wonderful initiative. So keep doing it. I really love it. All right. Have a good night. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Okay. So, uh, Chris, you ready to rant a little bit before we end this? Yeah. I think we're going to do a l- what are we going to do, Yos? Yos sent well, me this. We're going to do a little yeah. rant on vaccinations, right? Yeah. So, I, you know, I had some friends of mine. A uh, couple of them are like hippie type of people. Not hippies, but like, you know, they, they're they very crunchy. You know, they don't, 
they use the cube that that crystal to like for deodorant you know and like everything's natural and they just had kids and they they i mean these babies are going to grow up to be the most amazing people um because you know they're eating the most natural stuff and growing up in a very natural way but um they they were telling me one of them was saying oh we're not going to vaccinate our kids and i i just i i couldn't believe it i was like no, dude, you got to vaccinate your kids, bro. I was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You got to vaccinate your kids. So um, there is a, uh, I guess, a resurgence in measles coming out in New York because some uh, Hasidic or uh, ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities uh, also do not believe in vaccinating. So it's not just Jenny McCarthy. It's uh uh, large swaps of the American public and considering how what a great boon vaccine I mean vaccines are arguably the most the greatest invention from medicine in terms of saving lives um, I I just had to rant about the fact that people are not vaccinating their kids and we should be doing it I know you know Jane McCarthy's out there saying not to do it but uh, we got to do it and uh, well, yeah, there's so a part of the let's let's start here no one should be listening to Jenny McCarthy. If you if you if you want to listen to some other people, that's fine. But but I don't think Jenny McCarthy is ever. I, I can rem, I can remember I remember a lot of things about Jenny McCarthy, and vaccinations are not any of them that come to mind. Um, listen, I'm a parent, right? I have a kid. I have a two year old, and I went through I went through a phase before I had it, and I said, I'm not going to vaccinate my kid unnecessarily. It's like this. It's like this. Uh, it's like this innate thing we ha- we do. I don't know, yo. So I'm just like, nah, man. Kid doesn't need it. He's going to get strong for, by just being around germs. We don't need it. There's there's no polio anymore. I went through that whole thing, and then I started thinking about it, and I'm like, I'm going to vaccinate my I'm going to vaccinate my kid, man. What am I crazy? Um, and I think it's 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 because when you go through the stats and you go through the facts, and I think there there's a couple. Maybe I could put this link up on the website. There's some myths and facts about vaccinations. A lot of it's just mythical. Like a lot of people no, just make it, things it, up. It like, started with you know, this guy who published in I think it was Lancet or something. Yeah, Half he completely it, made it up. Yeah, and it, it it did so much damage. People thought, oh, I vaccinate my kids. It's got mercury. They're getting autism, and people stop vaccinating their kids. And it it for it you know first of all they've removed the uh, mercury. Uh, which is, you know, it's a deadly neurotoxin. You don't want mercury. Your kids see mercury. They've taken it out the vaccine, even though I think it's still in flu vaccines. But still, for kids, they are not seeing the mercury anymore. Vaccinate your kids. We don't need measles in New York City schools in 2014. But yeah, th- to that, th- yeah. To, to that, I'm just going to recommend one thing. Don't trust us. Uh, Nova, you know the uh, the science yeah. uh, program from PBS, Public Broadcasting. Uh, uh, they have a new special called "Vaccines Calling the Shots," where they go through all the studies and how this all started and where it stands now, and you can make your own decision based on the science. So it's called "Vaccines Calling the Shots." Came out aired September 10th on PBS. Uh, and if anybody's curious, you could watch it online and, uh, stream and make up your own mind. But the vast majority of, you know, scientists will tell you, it's like, you know, they say 97% of climate scientists, the PhDs who study the climate say that global warming is happening. It's the same sort of thing. So, um, please. Yeah. I mean, look, if you just, there's a lot of facts, 
on vaccination and the facts just, you know, they, they speak for themselves. I mean, um, vaccines help. It's gotten rid of diseases. That's why they're not around. And if we stop vaccinating, they'll come back. I mean, that's just a fact. We don't want polio. Um, it said, I mean, there's this, this, this is the belief that these, the vaccine preventable diseases are almost eradicated in our country. So there's no reason to get vaccinated. That's false. I mean, do, there are in, in like Western Europe, measles outbreaks are occurring all the time and have in unvaccinated populations in Austria, Belgium, like in Italy, all over the place, in UK. Uh, now, um, now, like Joseph said, it's in our country and it's popping up. It's not like these things are just gone because, you know, they went away. They went away because of vaccination. And if we have this movement to not vaccinate, they will come back. And I know a lot of people out there are just like, well, you know, uh, it's best to just let our our bodies or our, our, our immune systems cope and deal and figure it out. Nah, man, it's not. I promise you. We yeah. don't want outbreaks of measles and, and mumps and, and all that stuff. I promise. It I won't mean, be a th- good scene. There is a certain amount of over sanitization and hy- hyper, you know, uh, sanitization going on right now. And the immune system is like a muscle. If you don't use it, you'll lose it, essentially, in terms of developing an immunity. You're, you know, you got to work the immune system so that you know you're not seeing the flu virus for the first time in your yeah. 20s but you know it it you're right it's just i i just it, i get a little frustrated when i see you know one of the greatest boons in medical advances one of the greatest things med- modern science has created is being abandoned and not yet yeah, yeah, I, I agree i mean let me just close it by saying if you're gonna say don't vaccinate your kids Please give. Please present some reasons as to why. Just don't say that for no reason. I mean, that's that's the part of it that really pisses me off. No, uh, you just know, don't listen like, to Jenny you McCarthy. Vaccinate your kids. Why? <laughs> because it's not good for them. All right. Well, uh, you're gonna. That was like when the Catholic Church came out and said that condoms were actually thought to spread HIV. Oh God. And uh, and the <laughs> CDC came out with a statement and they said. We really appreciate the Vatican coming out with these statements. However, we really would like them to support it with some data because all the data we have suggests that it's the opposite. Yeah. So uh, let's not just make random statements. Let's make some supported claims. Um, yeah, and, and this and is a just, touchy subject because I'm not a parent, so I don't have the yeah, sensitization. Yeah, everyone's entitled to do whatever. I mean, this is your yeah. kid. Sure, yeah. you, you don't want to put things in their body. I get it. I'm a parent. However, do the research. I mean, just just look and read. Make sure it's diversified. Don't just read just one thing. Read both sides, and then you make a, a conclusion. But everything I've read um, really points to uh, get your kids vaccinated. You know what? I'm going to add this uh, link to the the vaccines to the website. Uh, the 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 documentary, the calling the shots. Yeah, do that. Because uh, then yeah. you know I haven't actually watched it through. I just listened to a podcast with the directors and. Um, I think it's uh you know worth worth watching if you're curious because there is a lot of you know there are questions that were raised and I think a lot of it has been answered but you got to see it so um to do it, it. yeah do it do it so on that note let's uh, close it down man yeah, and get out of here down. everybody uh we'll talk to you on episode 28 and we'll see you then yo right. my man take, take us care. out see you